0: Hi, everybody. This is Matt, and I'm starting a little side consulting business about podcasting. So if you want to start a podcast and you don't really know how, or you have a small idea and you're not sure how to build it out, I can help you with that. I've been doing podcasts for 15 years. I've also developed material with such people as David Keckner aka Champ Kind and Todd Packer, Jonah Ray, Nick Swartzen. I've consulted with Rick Rubin on a documentary i can't legally talk about right now <laughs> so i've worked with a lot of people and helped them bring out ideas be they comedy or serious as well is if you just need your podcast edited, i can do that i love editing i don't know why it's everything against me is that how my brain works but i actually really love editing so if you have a podcast and you want me to edit it i can do that reach out to me at themattdwyer.com. The link is in the show notes to get me to the page that is exactly for the podcast stuff, editing and consulting. So check it out, and let's talk. And there is a slight chance that the link won't be ready for this episode, but it will be soon. So you can just contact me in on the website on Contacts. Thank you, and enjoy this episode. <laughs> Welcome to Conversations with Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is a music podcast. And speaking of music, that song that played me in is titled The Aftertime. It is from the album A Sky Record, and that is by Damon and Naomi. And my guest today is Damon Krukowski. And he was also in Galaxy 500 and Magic Hour, and he's created a lot of great music. And I'm not gonna lie to you right now, or ever. This is a great fucking episode. I usually edit the episodes down to exactly an hour, or give or take, and put the rest on Patreon if there's extras. But, and there is actually a little bit extra on the Patreon of this episode, but it was a perfect episode. We, Damon brings it full circle at the end, wraps everything up, and it's just absolutely perfect. I'm, I... It's, I don't know, I just loved this conversation. We covered all kinds of things that I don't, we went into new areas. And it wasn't just about, hey, I'm a musician, this is my music. It was a plethora of life conversation, and I really greatly enjoyed it. All show notes, in the show notes, are all things for Damon, his bands, his band camp. He's a great writer. On top of it, he has published some books. He has a publishing house. He also has a, uh, Substack blog. Uh, I read a number of his articles and, and which we even discuss in the conversation. And it's, he's a great writer. So truly check them out and, um, all that stuff. And I mentioned the Patreon. I want you to, uh, go to my website, thematdwire.com. That'll link you to the Patreon for five bucks a month. You get all kinds of extra footage and whatnot and blogs. There's a lot there. Video, you could look at Damon and I talking if you want. And as well as I mentioned in the pre-show thing, I'm consulting for podcasting, so reach out to me. I think that's it. Oh, yeah, and if you... My, my partner in life, Kelly R. DeWire, also does builds websites and does photography. Go to Kelly R. Dwyer. If you need a website for your podcast, or your political whatever you do, not right-wing bullshit, we won't do those, but, uh, you know, let her build your website. And I think that's it. I think that is all. Um, this is a really great episode. I'm very, oh, I want to thank Andy Wilson, who put this together, who introduced Damon and I, and made this all possible. So thanks to her. And now, please enjoy my conversation with Damon Krukowski
1: yeah we watch a lot of depression era movies which are really good
0: my 30s were
1: a depression era yeah so in <laughs> <were> the 1930s <laughs> yeah. uh,
0: what what do you find in the depression era films that anything that relates to today
1: yeah there's a kind of a um there's a black humor i think to them that um can be very uplifting in some strange ways it's like you know you know that the world is horrible outside but but there's a lot of kind of can-do perseverance and um and and plus they're just beautifully made they're just great
0: what are some of the films you've been to just toss out there
1: Oh, all the, all the cla- golden era of Hollywood classics. I mean, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, all the wonderful Barbara Stanwyck films and uh, Preston Sturges films, um, Lubitsch films. Um, I, I just, I, I, I love the era and I can watch them endlessly. The good ones are just so good. You can't believe it.
0: Yeah. I haven't watched any old films in a long time, but I surely
1: did. Well, here, here's one for right now which I recommend, which is To Be or Not To Be. Have you heard of it?
0: Yeah. Did did Mel Brooks remade that, if I'm not mistaken, as well?
1: Oh, that's right. I think he did. I never saw the remake. I wonder if that's any good. Yeah, it's, um, it's Jack Benny. Um, and it's set in wartime Poland, and it's the grimmest possible scenario. But it's brilliant, and it's funny. Um, I, I really recommend it. I mean, especially just in the face of Dealing with, um, with the Ukraine and with the dictator and everything that's happening. Um, it's shockingly funny, given the, the grim, grim uh, environment.
0: <laughs> that's hard to achieve, humor in a grim situation.
1: Oh my God. It's, I mean, you just can't believe they get away with it. But but they do. Um, it's, it's just brilliant.
0: I'll have to um, check that out. I'm a fan of Jack Benny's for sure.
1: Yeah, it, it was Carol Lombard's. I think it was her last film because she died in an airline crash during the war. And it was, um, it's she's incredible. She's beautiful and funny, and it's she's just great. Yeah, all, all her films are great, but this is a particularly good. I'll
0: one. have to visit some Carol Lombard. I always like go towards the if I visit old movies. Which I've like, you get cravings. It's weird. Like you're just like, hmm. mm-hmm. like I don't know what that yearning is for old films. Maybe nostalgia. I don't know.
1: Yeah, for me, this is like nostalgia from you know my parents' childhood. So it's not quite nostalgia, but there is a fascination about the past for sure. Yeah, you know, we go through periods, but I always return to the '30s. I mean, they just there was the films are so good. And they're so funny, and they're deep too. You know, they have this like they're not afraid to. To be deep in moments,
0: <laughs> I just uh, uh, unlike our I have a lot of our mainstream cinema these days, it's just.
1: Uh, I have a lot of trouble with the. Are you into the TV serials? Everybody, you know, premium TV, uh, whatever it's called these days. <laughs> Rd Rd TV Rd TV.
0: Uh, I am. So, you know, it's weird. Because I have worked in that, the biz, as they say. Oh,
1: really? Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: and I don't, I, I, I've i I found myself just going to books more these days. And mm-hmm. it has to be, I've, I'm revisiting Treme for some reason. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I mm-hmm. chose to do that. But mm-hmm. I don't watch a lot of TV suddenly.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I wonder what that is. I, I have trouble with the, those things having no ending, you know? Um, like they go on and on and then they, they end when they're either... They get canceled or or they get sick of it.
0: Yeah. I think that's why I've revisited Treme and David Simon Mm -hmm. shows all have are so crafted that they have an ending and they're usually five seasons or whatever. So I can't. Yeah, because I've had series that I followed and then like they go away and I'm like, hey, man, (laughs) Mm we didn't resolve this.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the Hollywood ending is much maligned, but at least it's an ending. You know. Sometimes <laughs> sometimes they're ridiculous. We just rewatched um, the Garbo version of uh, Anna Karenina. I don't know if you have a novel, but it ends tragically the novel, but the Hollywood version ends happily. So it's really it's a, it that's a great film, Garbo in Anna Karenina. She made it twice though. Wait, one of them's not as good as the other. Which one is a good one? That's interesting,
0: remaking the same film twice. Well,
1: one's a silent, one's a talkie.
0: Woody Allen remade the same film 20 times.
1: <laughs> That's a good, very good.
0: I was a yeah. huge, huge Woody Allen fan too, and, but that, that got to a point where come the 90s, like take his personal life out of the equation, come to the 90s, yeah. it just, it really got.
1: Yeah, I had to stop uh, watching them. It's true.
0: I can't it's look the- at them anymore sadly. just for
1: the record it's the silent Garbo uh Karenina that's so good and it's not called Anna Karenina it's called what's it called it's got love in the title maybe it's just called love something like that I gotta find it it's, um so because I guess it's not quite uh Karenina they felt free to change the ending but it's very very comic it's just called love
0: do you do you tend to prefer I like a sad, depressing ending. <laughs> I don't know what yeah. that says about me.
1: <laughs> uh, no, I no, I mean, this is a good example. The love, it's John Gilbert and Greta Garber in silent film. And um, it's so ridiculous that they decide to make it a happy ending because it's the novel on the current I mean, the ending's already written. But I got to say, I don't mind it at all. There's, a, You know, you go out of the theater singing, it's like the lovers <laughs> got together <and laughs> Everything's okay. <laughs> you know, it's kind of amazing. She doesn't have to she doesn't have to die. I know most people end.
0: prefer that because life is pretty grueling, but I always mm-hmm. found like a for me personally, and I think that's why I was attracted to Woody Allen films, is that cause he never for the most part, he ends up alone or people end up alone, and I found a comfort where I was like, oh, I'm not alone. In being alone,
1: (laughs) right, right, yeah, no, certainly, I don't mind um, melancholy films. Tarkovsky is another favorite around here. Bergman, you know, but but the '30s films don't don't go that route usually. Um, They tend to be, you know, even the dark, depressing. uh, depression era ones. Oh here here's another mode of those, which is Frank Capra films. Yeah. So th- this also goes with today, well, especially when with the Trump era. Um, because a lot of them are about the rise of American fascism. There's like the potential for the fascists to take over here. And they sort of play out this plot over and over and over again. Um, yeah, and they're um but they have this uplifting ending usually that uh, you know, it was kind of like we, you know, go out there and save democracy, and and uh, we're gonna we're gonna vanquish the the fat cats kind of thing. Yeah. And again, there's something, even though it feels tacked on a lot of the time, there's something positive that you leave with a little bit of jolt of energy that he's laid out the real grim reality to you, and then sort of pushes you out like, so get back to work. <laughs> I don't
0: feel like there. I don't know. Do you feel like society and f- film are intermingled as much as they used to be?
1: I do. I mean, especially with the TV stuff. I mean, I feel like I see people talking about, them, um, about, uh, what they're watching all the time. So in that way, yes. And I, you know, I think it's can't help, but be reflective of, of what's going on in the culture at large. But, um, I don't know, cinema like in the movie theaters, the big commercial cinema, probably not the way it was. Although maybe they're dealing in deep myths in those superhero films for all I know. I feel like that's, I, don't, I don't watch them.
0: I, I don't watch them often. Yeah. In fact, I, I kind of despise them. <laughs> yeah. But I feel I mean, like that, people yeah. always f- shove in the like, well, it's also about this. And I'm like, I don't think, I think that's like, afterthought with the marketing team <laughs> not, mm-hmm. not the filmmaking
1: yeah yeah i think a lot of that can be also written in by i'm written by you know clever scholars and and critics and that's you know more power to them it's a little bit like optimism i i you know i admire the music critics who who write that way but I, it doesn't mean i can really believe the music is worth my attention there's still a division between that like uh, the criticism might be way better than the the music that they're writing about, <laughs> and I think that's that's kind of that's, her, that's heresy from a pop optimist perspective. But but I just don't have an ear for that kind of music, and it's the same with a lot of contemporary Hollywood. So the the uh, just to, again for the record, since I was I, I had to Google because I'm forgetting titles in my.
0: In my I'm really age. good at forgetting titles and yeah, names.
1: Um, so it's it's Meet John Doe is is a good example of a Frank Capra movie that just goes to the. Depth, depth, depths of, kind of what we were facing in the Trump years and Fox News and all of that, but um, at the very last second, in really a kind of unbelievable turn of events, rescues you know the Gary Cooper from 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 the abyss and sends you out of the theater with some kind of jolt of hope. So if you've never seen Meet John Doe, um, definitely put that on your watch list. <laughs> I don't, I don't think I have. Mm. It's but, a it's a less famous one than some of the other Capra films, my, like you know. But it's so good, it's so good. Barbara Stanwyck and Gary Cooper I can't go wrong. Your microphone
0: is rubbing on your collar just a little. Oh, bit. sorry. There we go. That's okay. But yeah, I binged a lot of that stuff. Like in the, we'll say the blockbuster days, blockbuster. Mm-hmm. And so I don't like. I, and my roommates and I would just every night come home from. We worked at a theater, so we would just drink coffee and watch old movies almost every night that sounds great it was a kind of a theater was it oh we would just do it in our kitchen (laughs) oh right i see but i grew up in chicago there was some great art house theaters and we lived around the corner from facets which was like Mm -hmm. do you know facets Facets.
1: yeah i do i used to mail mail order from them too yeah Yeah, facets was amazing is it still there as a mail order place
0: the last time I checked, which mm-hmm. was a few years ago, it was still there and they mm-hmm. had a theater and it was like crazy because it was literally right
1: around the corner from me. Wow. No, Facets is a rare um, resource for sure.
0: Yeah. And my roommates were a little bit older than me. So, and I was like, just kind of a bumpkin from the suburbs. So I suddenly had these two art- artist roommates and mm-hmm. they were watching Bergman and Fellini and right. I had grown up you know my dad was into like he, John Houston and and uh, a, lot, a lot of that sort of so he was but it was you know not fucking bergman <laughs> mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. which when
0: you see like fellini for the first time it's your mind melts at 18 yeah
1: yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. No, that's great. I, I hope, I hope it's still melting minds for, <laughs> for people that age. Yeah. I love, I go back to those movies too. Yeah. We're, Naomi and I just love film. And so um, we do spend a lot of time watching, but classic film. Um, and definitely during the pandemic, we got even more into it. I mean, just cause we couldn't go out anywhere. We could we weren't on the road. So, you know, it was like a lot of nights at home. Unusual for us.
0: Yeah my do have you worked have you ventured towards doing anything in film it seems like
1: you've done no, so. naomi but naomi does so she makes music videos for for bands and she's made um she's making a a feature length essay film now documentary kind of oh cool um that's her current project so and it's nearing completion so she has been making film i've never been involved in um Anything to do with that? Even because
0: uh, your music seems like it would be perfect for.
1: We've had our songs used by films, but we've never been asked to like um, compose for a film or anything like that. Um, but then we did one project. This was for a film Naomi made. She made a film, a silent film that's uh, like 35 minutes long called Fortune. And so we wrote a soundtrack to it. So we commissioned ourselves for one soundtrack. <laughs> and, but, but instead of making it a soundtrack like to the film, we actually wrote a suite of songs that synced to the film. So every song on that album, then we released it as an album, every song on that album fits, was determ- the length was determined by a scene in the film. Um, so it was a, it was a backwards um, project. I mean, in that way, it was a soundtrack. But it, but you can just listen to the album. It sounds like an album, a song. Was
0: that, writing that, was the approach completely different than you had to approach music prior?
1: Yeah, I mean, it made our songs a lot shorter, which was kind of an interesting um, lesson because you couldn't, like, you couldn't just repeat a chorus because you felt like you could, or you wanted to add a variation or whatever. Or, you know, you had another verse of lyrics, so you're going to add another verse. You couldn't do it because the scene ends. So it was a great discipline to just it's kind of be really concise. Um, and in that way, it was really fun. But other than that, we followed our usual um, way that we always work. Uh, but then we, we we performed it one tour cycle and took it around and we performed the whole album in order with the film playing. And that was weird because that's very different than a normal live show. And the thing that we we learned then was actually pauses between songs are really uh, important for the artist. It's very hard to just like go song, 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 never ever pause for even a split second. And those shows were kind of short because the movie's shorter than a regular show, but it, they were exhausting because your concentration had to be so intense. And if you missed anything, it was just disaster. So you had to like stay like right locked in on the cues. So that was a weird experience, but, I, but it was really fun.
0: How long were those performances?
1: 35 minutes. I mean, the film is 35 minutes. And then we what we figured out to do, because we needed to do a little bit more to headline, was... um Play a couple songs, sort of like a different, you know, separate from the movie, like as an encore kind of thing. Um, but, um, but that's what we did. We just played the movie, it was pretty fun. That sounds really cool, yeah. And it was very funny because a lot of venues, some you know, we ended up in some proper places with like film equipment ready to do this, but then others were just venues we were playing and we're like, Do you mind if we show the movie? And they're like, No, and we're like you know, do you have a screen? And everybody says yes. <laughs> and then, so the screens range from, like, um, you know, a sheet taped up, literally with gaffer tape, to, um, like, the TV monitor over the bar. You know, it was just like, such a crazy range of things. Um, and then some genuine theater. theater. We played it in um, Seattle at uh, Experience Music Project, they claim to have the largest video screen in the world. It's it's like one of their features. It's this big giant thing in the middle of a building, built by um, Microsoft money, and we played it there too. So that was like you know super 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 high tech. <laughs> and then down to to like in in Montreal at the wonderful venue um, Casa del Popolo, a punk rock anarchist venue vegetarian cafe. And you know with them we're like can we play them. Movie and they were like sure and they had this sheet and they pull out the sheet and we're like great how do you hang the sheet and they're like oh i don't know that's you know i figured you figured out how to hang the sheet and we're like well (laughs) do you gaffer tape you know and they're like no so you know we're like running out to the hardware store to get gaffer tape and like gaffer tape up a sheet so it was it was the whole gamut but it was really fun really really fun i can't help like When
0: they're like, yeah, we have a screen, is, are, are you just not trying or are you just sort of oblivious? <laughs> like, what, <laughs> like, what think, is the know, disconnect?
1: Well, in the, in the defense of a lot of those venues that said yes, they wanted us to play. And I think our request sounded sort of random. It was like, you know, to you have a screen? You know, we put it on a rider, we just <laughs> added it to the rider. And I guess they thought maybe we had a light show or I don't know, it didn't people didn't necessarily put two and two together that we really meant it like we had to have a screen
0: but at least they didn't put like a give you a screen like the one on your window where they're just like you mean this
1: oh no we did do that too in Italy oh. I remember we played like it was like a window shade pulled down in an art gallery <laughs> oh and oh god another good one just came in my head where was it oh I'm blanking now there were so many good weird <laughs> situations we ended up in Oh, I know. We had, a, uh, you know, like school teachers, I don't know if you're old enough, but you used to have an audio visual in school and they pull down the oh, screen. Yeah. I have like one of those.
0: To... <laughs> I have, yeah. I'm 53. So I know exactly okay, what you're talking okay.
1: about. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, um, in, um, Glasgow, um, that's what they brought. They brought like one of those pull down, you know, like a school teacher thing and like had a little tripod of its own and then you like, you know, it comes vertical and you turn it horizontal yeah. and you pull it. It was so cute. And we were, you know, we were larger than the screen, you know, like, the, like us on stage.
0: <laughs> well, if you come to Los Angeles, I have one about 15 feet from me as we speak.
1: Oh, that's really good. Oh, in LA, we did it at the silent movie theater.
0: Oh, that place is when I moved here, which was mm-hmm. 20 years ago, I was obsessed and in love with that place.
1: Yeah. It's a beautiful place. Wonderful. With with a murder story as well.
0: Yeah, you can't beat uh, it. It's supposedly it. haunted if you buy that yeah, sort of Yeah, thing. it's
1: got everything. It's got everything.
0: Yeah, yeah. I yeah. used to go to the Buster Keaton things on every Sunday.
1: It was It Oh, yeah, Buster Keaton. Now you've hit an obsession of mine. So I love Buster Keaton. Yeah, so exactly. It's, I mean, the films like that, I will go back to, back to and back to and back to and back to. And the silence are so great. But yes, the silent movie theater, that was a wonderful situation. That was perfect. But of course, there isn't... I mean, that's L.A., right? You don't have... Spaces like that all over the world.
0: Um, but, I don't get it. Like, uh, revival houses, that's for years, that's all the only theaters I would go to in Los Angeles. Oh, I know. And we had, yeah. The new Beverly still exists, but Tarantino mm-hmm. bought that and the Vista, mm-hmm. which it's still a mystery what he's going to do with the Vista. But thank wow. God somebody is saving.
1: Cool yeah, that's old. a good thing to do with his money. That's like what Jack White does with his money. It's good. I'm, yeah. I'm into that when when stars take their money and plow it back into old technology to save culture. Yeah. It's what good. is
0: Jack White doing with his dough?
1: Oh my God. What isn't he doing? He, <laughs> he, he built a, he built a pressing plant for vinyl. Oh, that I knew. Yeah. He buys and rest- If you go to Nashville and go to the third man store in Nashville, it's filled with these um, kind of novelty devices from the 1920s and thirties, audio devices, like cut your own record, booth um that will and you can see it cut the record and things like that. I mean it's just it's so great. It's like, yeah, great rock stars, this is what rock stars should do is, you know, buy completely useless technology <laughs> and, and rescue it. So people can see it and experience it. You know? And he has, like, seriously, I was told he has a a full-time restoration people to deal with those machines because they break constantly, of course. You know, and who's going to fix it? Who's going to fix, like, the acetate cutting machine?
0: That's the kind of job creators we need.
1: Yes. Fuck the exactly. other stuff. I totally, no, I totally agree.
0: I totally agree. Cause I, I totally agree. Me, like my weird neurosis is like, what if one day there's no one who's going to repair neon signs? Then what? Oh, like that oh, shit yeah. I think about.
1: Oh, that stuff happens left and right. Yeah. There's this amazing thing that happened in, that we heard about in Japan because of the war, like that total cultural break that happened in physical break. Um, that they lost a lot of traditional um, know-how because the chain of of transmission was broken. And um, so then a lot of uh, crafts that had been kept continuously for a thousand years, they just broke, you know, from like this four-year break or even less in Japan than four years. And it's kind of an amazing thing that you realize how fragile that kind of transmission really is. And then you throw in rapidly outdating technology like neon or, you know, vinyl or whatever. And you've really got a very fragile technological handoff. And I think Naomi and I have witnessed this in our work because, you know, another thing we do is publish books and we've watched all these trades just disappear because when we started publishing it was pre, pre-personal computers, we still, we had to send our typesetting out to type houses that had all these old men working in them and they had typeset every book in the US that had ever been typeset, you know? And they knew everything there was to know about everything to do with typesetting. And those guys just disappeared. And then the type houses that they worked for disappeared and the whole machinery was wrecked and everything. And then you get these horrible looking, Computer typeset things. And it is just kind of amazing to witness.
0: Yeah, I just read a book recently and I was like, am I going insane? But the typeset was changing like throughout mm-hmm. the page. And I was like, it was driving me crazy. Good mm-hmm. book, but couldn't focus. It was
1: like, yeah, there's an awful lot of dreadful typesetting. I mean, I think it's gotten a little better with time, but you know, there's still just so much bad. Uh, typography out there because, I mean, the other side of it is, of course, well, we all have the power to, to, to make books on our own. That's great. And signs and whatever. But, um, but there was so much skill that was lost, just built up skill. And you, I mean, it's happened time and again in, in, in human history, but it's, I think in our era, we've witnessed it so many times over and over. And now it just happens even with just like recording technology. It's so grim you know, from my point of view, because analog had hit a height, just a height of, of fantastic equipment and engineers who knew how to deal with it and maintenance people who knew how to take care of it. And, and, um, and to see that all just be jugged in my own short career is really distressing. I, uh, yeah, you know? I've read your article
0: on mono, which was Oh
1: yeah, that's a good. That's probably my crankiest <laughs> node.
0: I felt ashamed a little bit that I was not that conscious of of. Uh, but as a music fan, I was like, I'd never thought of any of this.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, mono. You don't. You don't because it just sounds like stereo is progress. So why would you ever even think about mono? You know, and then, but it just ended up that I got kind of obsessed with a bunch of mono recordings for various reasons. And then um, just started to listen to the way stereo was being used in contemporary mixing and getting really depressed by the whole thing. And just the loss of the subtlety that, that could be achieved in mono. And I actually think a lot of recording has, gone, has drifted back toward mono because um, people don't know what to do with stereo. Too well anymore because they're listening on headphones instead sort of speakers, and I don't know. It's become very um, sort of trashed as an art form in some ways. Stereo mixing, so I think a lot of mixing has actually drifted back toward mono, but without all the subtlety that mono recording had um, when it was the default. Um, but again, I think just because people do brilliant things with with whatever they're given to work with, and I mean that's happens. That happens in digital too. I mean, you hear this incredibly inventive use of digital that's that's out there. But then you also—it's just a, this tragedy of all the loss of all this knowledge and know-how uh, that just you know disappears. Just totally disappears. You know these recording studios. I mean, L.A. is a prime example. You know.
0: Yeah, I, some of those
1: old studios are gone. Absolutely, and you know it's and and it wasn't just the equipment, which of course gets fetishized and can be bought by people and put in their home studios or whatever. If they can, you know, rock stars can say, oh, I've got the board that was at, uh, you know, one one channel that was at Abbey Road or whatever the hell they pay for. But, um, <laughs> but the know-how, it's the human knowledge that's like really disappears, just disappears. If it's not a profession to be an apprentice in a studio and work your way up and like, you know, be exposed to all these tricks of the trade and experience, and it, it can't be rec- recreated. It really can't. Yeah. So... That's the depressing thought of the day. To go back to movies, uh, uh, my my equivalent to, to praising mono would be praising the silence of 1928 and 1929. It's like if you want to see beautifully made film, watch a silent film from 1928 and 1929 because it's it's just like an analog audio recording from you know 69, 68, 66, you know, 66 to 69. It's like it just hit such a height of know-how and subtlety of what they could do with sound film at that moment. And then by 1930, it's all gone. I mean, the entire industry is lost of sound film. I mean, you just watch those films, it's like, my God, look what they were doing in 1929. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful and so skillful. and just you know, boom, gone through improvement, you know, well now films can make sound. <laughs> disaster yeah so many things I mean talkies got good quickly but they were awful in 1930 you know I mean because it's stagey and the microphones are ridiculous and they're hiding them in flower vases and everyone actors are speaking weirdly and you know
0: yeah which I learned from you is that that's how stereo came about was because the gentleman who invented it was like he was just trying to do it for film
1: mm-hmm. right to make spatial sound for film yeah yeah, which is similar to 3D now. I mean, I think all this stuff that, that's happening in audio excitement about um, whatever they're calling it now, this, you, when, you, when you have like the sound surrounding your head kind of thing. And a lot of that comes from gaming, um, which, or all of it comes from gaming, which I think is sort of equivalent to the way that when stereo audio was being invented to follow a sound across a sound stage. It's similar. It's like, yeah, in gaming that makes sense. I can understand. I don't play games, but I can understand. You put yourself in this fantasy world, you want to have sounds like all around your head. But for music, I don't you know, I I don't see the gain. I don't see any anything gained in that for music. It seems completely just playing with a toy that will be gone. (laughs) Yeah, I would, it's like quadraphonic.
0: I was thinking, like, <clears throat> when, like, I guess it would be the 50s, 60s, when they were constantly coming up with new, like, technicolor and this the color and that, and, like, mm-hmm. gimmicks. I'm like, is this similar? And in, like, 30 years, will we look back at all this and go, well, that was kind of silly?
1: Yeah, well, I don't think you'll be able to play any of it in 30 years. I mean, that so you won't even have the opportunity to be like that. was. You know, you have to have the old equipment and have some kind of, there's no way uh, any better than we can, like, Play an 8-track It's hard to play an 8-track <laughs> You know Because you have to have A machine that works And It's not easy To keep that going Or find them
0: I'm surprised They haven't come back Like I like Records made sense to me I was like Yeah, mm-hmm. records But then cassettes came back And I was like Really?
1: Yeah, no Cassettes are I mean I'm the only doomed.
0: A friend of mine Who's a musician Was like for uh, For like Low-end poor guys It's a way to get He's like, at least I can get it out And it won't cost right. me an
1: arm and a leg Yeah, yeah, that makes sense On the other hand, they sound awful <laughs> I mean, let's, be, let's be honest <laughs> I, yeah,
0: I mean, I, I had cassettes, tons of them as a kid And it was just yeah. like they, It
1: was it, a compromise And it's like, you get, I gotta sc-
0: screech it through To find the song I want Like to fast yeah. forward while it's playing Just
1: Yeah, well that sound is pretty nostalgic now though. yeah but um, but they sound dreadful, and that's why I can't imagine they're coming back. Also, it's hard to find them blank, even. And you know, that's that's a serious capital investment to start manufacturing <laughs> cassettes. I don't think it's worth it. Yeah, I've... If we're gonna have tape. Make it a little thicker, a little wider, please.
0: Do you? find it foolish that now CDs are kind of coming back?
1: Well, no CDs, I mean, it's funny. I don't think they're coming back commercially. Um, I really think that's a, a false hope. But CDs are an amazing medium. I mean, they're so convenient for digital sound. And they, they do archive pretty damn well. I have had, I'm old enough now that I have had CDs fail on me. Um, both unplayed ones from storage and ones that I've played so much that they've failed. Um, wow. But but they are pretty good for archiving and then even when even when they start to fail you can usually grab them off it and put it onto a fresh one and keep it going so it's it's pretty good i still rely on them especially as a digital archive because yeah. you know hard drives are problematic and um I've and lost cds plenty. you can yeah and you can put them on a shelf and if you put two on the shelf you yeah, i think you're pretty you're in pretty good shape
0: yeah I have I that I did not get rid of all my CDs and I'm
1: actually, no don't I'm I mean really yeah and then the, I mean the great thing about I mean commercially produced CDs then I still buy because um, of the liner notes I mean we had a really glorious moment of long liner notes and CD booklets there for a period and I'm going back and buying some that I didn't I couldn't afford at the time or you know they were I didn't I didn't buy at the time. For one reason or another, and now they, when they're cheap, I buy them. I I, I I I have trouble paying a lot for a CD <laughs> for obvious reasons. They're still pieces of junk, <laughs> but the liner notes are amazing.
0: I mean, that's what that's why I think records came back. I think people wanted to have that conne- beyond. I think the sound, but the connection, mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. I, I don't like that yell at a speaker and sound comes out. Like I want, yeah. And I want my kids to also appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Like I'm like,
1: yeah, the fact that you can share it is really key and resell them. I mean, you know, I think it's such a scam that Apple pulled off with the iTunes store that you would pay them for a download and you couldn't resell it. I mean, what a kind of strange turn of events for any, any sale of anything. It's yours. It's yours to resell. And they made it undoable. Um, and that's a that's a crazy fact. I mean, physical media has this wonderful advantage of being able to be reused. You know. Yeah. I mean, think of the poor thrift stores. What are they going to have in them? <laughs> I've
0: I will still look at records in thrift stores and find. Sure, you. There will be a lot of Herb Albert. Which, yeah. Which is I. Which Less I don't. Than there used to be. I own a lot of Herb Albert. Yes,
1: of course. <laughs> <laughs> always, well, especially in LA, there's always a lot of Herb Albert. In yeah. Stores. I think people yeah.
0: don't realize like, cause it's kind of a joke for anybody who's hunting for stuff like that in thrift stores, but mm-hmm. it's like, you don't realize how huge, I think people forget how huge that guy was.
1: Like huge. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, A&M Records, I mean, yeah. you know, big enough to found a record label. That's, pretty <laughs> That's Jack White big. <laughs> <laughs> it is yeah no there's enormous yeah and you and i've oh got all the exotica stuff that used to be in the in the thrift stores but you know what's in thrift stores now that's um slightly creepy is all this um people who have recorded their own things onto dvd or onto cdrs i don't know oh. if you see that in la but in the northeast you'll see that a lot in thrift stores now home recording well not you don't know what they are they they might be pirate stuff or they're duplicated media, but sometimes they're actually home created stuff, and they can be creepy. I've, I get a little creeped out even browsing them. Um, but there's but a lot of that media has found its way into thrift stores now. That's uh, non commercial digital media.
0: I found I found an old record cabinet recently on the street, and it's like from the s- '60s probably. Yeah. I have to refinish it, mm-hmm. it but there was a cassette, like a, one of those mini cassettes in it.
1: Oh, and yeah, I don't have yeah. a player
0: for that anymore. I used to, yeah. but I'm like,
1: what is on here? Yeah. It could be anything. Could be answering machine, could be a dictaphone. Answering machine be... would be great. Yeah. There's a documentary film by a, a local filmmaker here. Um, Jane Galluli, uh, Well worth looking up this film where she bought on eBay, a bunch of tapes and they turned out to be, Love letters back and forth from an illicit love affair. I've read about that. Yeah, it's a really fascinating movie. And the way she chose to do it is fascinating because she didn't show um, she doesn't try to recreate the scenes or anything. She she shows you a lot of physical tape like moving <laughs> as it plays. <laughs> <laughs> and you and you can't stop watching and listening. It's really it's pretty amazing. Wow,
0: that's really cool. Mm-hmm. I did I wonder if she had like a concept of like I'm buying something. That may lead to something, or was it just? I, that's, I'm it's curious. It's in.
1: The, I think it's in the film. The story of that. Unless I just heard her talk about it, but she knew. You no, know, she was after something. You know, that like there's something about the listing sounded unique. I can't remember what she was after originally. But um, but those kinds of those kinds of documents are around just because people once they could make their own recordings, and I've noticed that those are flooding into thrift stores now. You know, rather than Herb Alpert and, and you know, Ema Sumac, um, you come across these handwritten d v d r s and CD-Rs. It's kind of weird.
0: Yeah. I think you would buy those in hopes of finding some mysterious, wonderful thing, and it's probably mostly I, I think it's not. probably just,
1: yeah, I, I, I don't have the stomach for, for that kind of thing. <laughs>
0: My friend sent yeah. me recently a bunch of like old photos she found in a thrift store, which I was, mm. but it's like fascinating. Cause it's like, you know, 1950s and it's yeah. people getting drunk and like, it's just, it like creates such a world just by one visual.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I and I have spent a lot of time at um, photo shows and ephemera shows flipping through those kinds of photos. Visually I'm much more comfortable, I guess, looking through other people's formerly private affairs.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm still old fashioned. I like using somebody's windows. That's me.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the analog style. But but something about audio, I don't know what it is. It's kind of really hard for me to to go ahead and buy those things and start putting them on and it seems out what's evasive. On.
0: And it's also it's, I, Yeah. You get a more of a sense is. of who they are too. Like you could hear I don't know, maybe
1: yeah, I just grasping. I mean, Visual stuff can be very personal. I don't know why I have this block against doing that but I don't I don't buy those things at the thrift especially, store especially
0: Do you think there's any connection because you're so audio in your
1: art? I guess so. I guess so. I mean I guess if you audio stuff does somehow feel very personal but but that's bizarre too because I my you know part of my public work is make audio public. So that is a strange idea but I guess I've always been a little guarded about our um, outtakes and rehearsal takes. And, you know, there's this is the thing people will constantly ask you for demos. Um, you know, it's like, there'll be a compilation or a benefit or extra tracks, you know, for back in the day for CDs. And it was always like, well, don't you have a demo? You know, do you have any other songs? We're we like, no, actually we don't. We threw away all the other songs. You know? it's like <laughs> if we had other songs we liked, you'd hear them. And, um, and so it's like, no. And they're like, well, do you have demo tracks? It's like, huh? no, I would never let a demo recording go out. You know, it feels really private. Yeah, I've never been, and
0: those have never like interested me that much. When I buy a CD, I'm like, why do you have the same song on here five times just because it's <laughs> <laughs> Like, I feel it like, I'm like, you're pulling something here and I know it.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, I love. I do collect bootlegs, and I have a lot of live recordings, unofficial live recordings from all bands I admire and players I admire. But demos, I have some, but they they never turn out to be the the recordings I cherish. One big exception being the basement tapes, the original basement tapes from Dylan and the band. If you call those demos, which are an incredible, have you ever? gotten into that
0: i've it's been a long time since i've heard them but yeah
1: i have those are amazing graal marcus wrote a really great book about them and um if you seek out the original full-length versions of those um those are great those are really really great i will seek them out yeah i learned i learned and you learn a lot i feel as a musician i learned a lot just listening to them goof with each other and their instruments and how they're playing and what they're doing. Um, those are fun.
0: Is there, and I don't know if this is kind of a leap, but do you recall like when you became sort of attracted to audio and sound and music? And is it, is that also go with music or do you?
1: Yeah. Uh, audio is like pre, Pre-language for me because um, my mother's a singer, so my mother's a jazz singer, and uh-huh. she had a reel-to-reel recording in the house and recorded her own rehearsals. And maybe this is why I feel so private. Um, she was taping rehearsals and and rehearsing in the house. You know, there's piano in the house, and and musicians would be over, and so uh, that was part of my life from from infancy. I mean, literally from infancy. So. Um, I never have a memory, I don't have a memory from before knowing about recording. And wow, that's wild. Yeah, so my mom, I mean, she just had one vocal mic um, because she was a jazz musician. That, that was like her rehearsal mic. And when they did recordings, rehearsals in the house, they didn't mic any other instruments. You know, it was just like... Um, everything just spilling onto the tape from, from one mic, but, but, but it was still, so it wasn't like anyone was there engineering. Although I went to the studio with my mom and watched what they were doing there from a pretty young age. So that's, that's all like part of my very deep background. Um, And hearing my mom saying and her friends, you know, her, cause her friends would come over for dinner or whatever and play each other recordings that they were either new records they had or things they were working on. So I sat around listening to a lot of tapes like that too. What a, And acetates. That's just a, like the
0: education that you got is just, you know, as just being in, around it is insane.
1: Yeah, I wasn't trained in music. Like I didn't, um, you know, my mom got me piano lessons with her friends, um, but I didn't take to it. So I, I didn't learn music the way you're supposed to learn music and I didn't start studying jazz. So even though she kept hiring her jazz player friends to teach me, so, um, so in the end, my own music came out of punk rock and I just picked up my instruments without any knowledge. And I, I, I was taught to read music, but I still can't really, um, I know jazz notation, but my ear training was always pretty poor. And so I still, I still have really pretty rudimentary um, skill set um, in, in, in that regard. But in terms of listening, I guess, it was from very, very early on. Um, and then playing music was just natural for me. But, but it was so... I mean, you know, my mom was a professional and her friends were professional. So, um, you know, like, uh, first time I ever said my name is captured on tape actually this is very funny reflection on why i have this i don't want to buy the tapes in the in the thrift store um i had never put two and two together but there's a rehearsal table of my mom's where i say my name like i was in the room you know in the living room and the pianist is herbie hancock because he was a jazz accompanist he was really really young he was like he probably was 20 years old and um was an accompanist for my mom and uh, Herbie is there and I say my name, and, and then you hear Herbie saying, What? He said his name. Say it again. Say it again, you know. <laughs> Holy so, shit, that's amazing. And they've stayed in touch. He's a lovely man. And um not too long ago, well, pre-pandemic, but he was invited. I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, near Harvard University, and he was invited to give a series of lectures at Harvard. Very prestigious um invitation uh you know the kind of thing they give artists at their very mature part of their career and Herbie, Herbie came and gave this series of lectures and i went to say hi i hadn't seen him since i was i mean i'd seen him since i was a kid but i hadn't seen him probably physically in person person since i was in my 20s at the at the oldest maybe even teens and i was just a few years ago i went down to the lip of the stage afterwards, and said hi, and I said, "Oh, hi, Herbie," and he said, "Damon." I mean, it was unbelievable. Wow! It was just a minute, and then he said, "Do you know you? The first time you ever said your name was was when I was with you." It's like, "Yes, I know." That.
0: That's crazy. You know what would have been impressive if you scattered your name.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Well, it kind of sounds a little like Scott because I'm like, Baba. It, you know, it can barely tell us my name. i was like, Baba. Do you have those recordings? My mom does. Yeah, my mom does. Wow. So. Do you yeah, ever go listen she, to them? Um, she, no. She's got loads of real to real tapes in a in a cabinet, um, with all that kind of stuff. But, but I have. I've heard it in in adulthood. She played it for me again. But it was pretty, yeah. Because Naomi heard it, and she was she thought it was really freaky.
0: Was there anybody else of Herbie Hancock level on
1: some of those? Oh yeah. Well, in the jazz world, if you know um, my mom's generation of jazz players, I mean, her, her really good friend was John Lewis from the Modern Jazz Quartet.
0: Oh, I love so the Modern the, Jazz Quartet.
1: Yeah, so they were really close. And then they, uh, John and his wife Mariana, had kids a um, little younger than me and my brother. So we were family friends as well. Like took vacations together and, busy, you know, I mean, they were just a part of my life from from the beginning until they both passed away, unfortunately. And um, and Bob Brookmeyer, I don't know if you know his work. He worked with Jerry Mulligan in a classic classic uh, lineup, um, but then had a very illustrious career also as a composer and conductor, a big band conductor. And Bob was, and Bob's, wife when I was when I was small was Margot Gurion, the pop singer I don't know if you know that one album she made it it had it had a latter day rediscovery she was she moved to LA and the um it's you should really look it up it's a beautiful 60s pop record and Margot was Bob's um wife when I was a kid and they babysat for me a lot wow um so I was very close to both of them and And then it was amazing because Margot's record, Bob was like a great musician and and a very um, well-respected career. And Margot made this like one-off pop record and then never went back to it. But after they split, she married someone in the music industry. So she was in LA and knew a lot of people in the industry, but her record was never really, it was just like one of these lost 60s, you know, pop records. But it it was rediscovered by like my generation. Um, Stephen Merritt of the Magnetic Fields loved it, and all these people in England loved it, and Japan. And so it was reissued and had a whole new round of appreciation, more appreciation than I ever had at the time. And success was really, really wonderful for her. Wow, that's um, wild. So that was another family friend. And 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 then all the musicians my mom worked with were, um, were just these great jazz players who were in New York um, all the time. So that's just the world I grew up with and, and going to clubs. I mean, that's the other funny thing about that is that, you know, by the time we got around to playing clubs, um, I mean, I knew what a being in a club was, <laughs> from when, I was <laughs> from when I was like eight years old, you know? Um, so that wasn't, that wasn't the novelty of it for me. Um, that's fascinating. Yeah, and they're not that different, you know. Rock clubs—they're they're about the yeah. size that jazz clubs were in that era. Do
0: you? I'm fascinated. Do you think like your? What like what was your attraction to punk? Was that just because it was something? Was there that sort of it's not what my f- mom does, sort of rebellion, or was it something completely different?
1: Yeah, well, I, you know, I think it's just a function of my age and and where you know, what age I was when that music came out. I mean, I, I mean, I, I loved Zeppelin first, you know, when I was like 13, 14, and, you know, I went to see... I think you have to when you're 13. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially if they're playing Madison Square Garden and, and your rich friend takes you, you know, so, so, you know, I saw Zeppelin play Madison Square Garden, I saw wow. Pink Floyd play Madison Square Garden, I saw all these concerts of the sort of, the classic rock bands, um, some of them at their height, some of them in their kind of like late decadent moment um in the 70s so i was a teenager growing up in new york city and you know big rock stuff held its appeal you know like it does still for teens teenage white boys and um but i also like great black bands i mean i saw earth wind and fire and i mean it was just like it was like the garden concerts were just this thing like i could go to a garden concert once i was old enough to go to go to a, a stadium show i went um, so that was like a weird disconnect from my mom's world in that, you know, she'd take me to the Village Vanguard and see something really great, you know, but then, but then I'd, go to the, I'd go to Madison <laughs> Square Garden. Um, but that stuff was great too. I mean, I did, I saw some amazing shows that way. Um, but then by the time I got to be like a, uh, like a teen, uh, buying new records that were a little bit more, um, fresh, it was new wave moment you know it was like 79 and the clash meant a ton to me and blondie and you know um it was just what everything was coming out the ramones everything that was coming out that at that moment talking ads do you recall and the first
0: so, oh i'm sorry i didn't mean an eruption yeah, no
1: so i think it's just a function of my my age
0: <clears throat> yeah i was just curious if like the first time you heard heard punk or and and that music if you recall that moment
1: it didn't seem like a huge break to me, um, the way that I came to it. I mean, we were I, I was ignorant of UK, the kind of UK version, until a little bit later. So first I heard, I mean, I think I heard the Ramones before I heard Sex Pistols. And so it, it, it just, it didn't feel that different. It felt like a continuum. But you know, when you're that age, you don't really, I think you don't, at least at the time, I, I speak for myself I didn't have a sense it was just like what was on the radio all of a sudden but it didn't it wasn't like this like it used to be so different and now it's this it just sounded like you know something new but it wasn't it didn't seem radical it, it wasn't like oh throw out all my hippie records it, you know, <laughs> it just didn't sound that different <laughs> yeah. and and I think if you go back it doesn't sound that different you know um, there's much more of a continuum than there seemed to be in the, in the music press, but I wasn't reading the music press. Right. I was just um, hearing records on the radio or going to the record store and seeing what was out with a weird cover. And my friends had tipped me off too. Um, so that, that didn't seem so radical. Um, and I was still, I never gave up uh, my mom's record collection. I mean, I would borrow records from her when I had a stereo in my room as a teen and, um, I'd borrow records from her collection and I was listening to Miles Davis and I was listening to Sinatra even at the time, you know, because my mom, because I liked to sing and my mom was always like, you should listen to Sinatra. <laughs> and so I did, you know, because my mom told me to and I, and I wasn't against it. I was like, something's really great. So I was listening to all that at the same time. Um, I guess just because I, I would just go in her record collection. Also, I couldn't afford a lot of records of my own. So... You know, I'd have a couple at a time that I'd like absorb and memorize, but then you get bored and I'd go into the living room and take something from my mom's collection that looked cool and it would be, you know, Felonious Monk. So, you know, I was really obsessed with that too in the same years. So it was kind of all a jumble that way. When I went to college, you know, then it became much more self-conscious in terms of like, oh, this is the new stuff that's coming from England. You know, this is new order. This is post-punk. This is Perubu from Cleveland. This is really cool. This is, you know, Paisley Underground from LA. And, and it all started to like become more music writery and like understanding where these scenes were happening and how they were distinct from the other ones. And, that, and then that's the beginning of my own musical career. Um, and, and so in that regard, it was very unschooled, except as a listener, in that I hadn't taken lessons really on drums, for example. I mean, again, my mom sent me for one lesson with a really great jazz drummer named Reggie Workman in New York, because this is what my mom would do. She'd like call her friends, be like, Damon wants to play drums, who should I send him to? And they'd be like, call Reggie, man, you know? And so i go down to Reggie's studio at like West Beth. and he gave me his first lesson, which must be what he did for everybody, which was um, he put me in this room, his studio, like on this big drum kit, and it's like, okay, keep time. And with a metronome, you know, and then he left, right? And I'm like keeping time, and then he comes back in the room and like stops the, whatever I was playing to, and I'm totally off time. It's like we got a lot, a lot of work to do, man. <laughs> and I don't know what it was about me at that age, but already I was kind of like, fuck that! I'm not gonna. That's ridiculous, you know. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna like do this so that I can play to a metronome. I'm going to go play with some people. And, and so I didn't take any more lessons and just started playing in a band. You know, so I taught myself drums and I'd taken a couple of guitar lessons with a jazz player in New York again, and just stopped because I was like, I don't want to play these chords that you just taught me. Of course, now I do play those chords. I'm very, <laughs> very, very into, um, jazz chords as they're called sometimes. Um, but at the time, it was like, I just wanted to play folk songs, basically. You know, I wanted to play along to the Springsteen record or whatever it was in, on my turntable. And the guys teaching me, like, diminished ninth and 11th, and, you know. And uh, I was like, ah. So I stopped that, too. So I taught myself guitar as well. So, you know, in that way, it was punk rock. But it wasn't really... It wasn't stylistic, I guess. <laughs> it was just attitude. Just yeah. 100% attitude. Don't teach me anything useful.
0: But yeah, but I feel like yeah, like you were saying about punk. It's like when I went back and listened to the Sex Pistols, like as a kid the Sex Pistols I was like, "Ooh, they're scary." Now I listen to it and I'm mm-hmm. like, "These are pretty well-polished pop songs."
1: <laughs> yeah, and they're really 70s sounding. I mean, they just really sound like 70s guitars, you know. It could be could be a heavy metal record. Yeah. Um, except for Johnny Lydon, I mean I think you know yeah who was just Johnny Lydon from the beginning I mean I, I and well public enemy I'm sorry <laughs> public enemy public image was another like formative um band for for me and for for us collectively in college years you know so it was post it was post punk so my professional career starts in post punk basically but high school was punk rock Right.
0: Did you get to see a lot of those?
1: Being in no, I was a little too young and um, a little too risk averse to go full in. Like I missed going to see the Clash at Bonds. I could have. Naomi missing Joy Division. It turned out to be New Order's first show because um, Ian Curtis had killed himself on the right before they left for tour. I don't know if you know that story. I do. And her friend in high school had an extra ticket who had bought tickets to see Joy Division, you know, and in New York, and was like, come see them. And, and it was, I think it was the Maxwell shows or something. She she had to go to New Jersey to see it, and Naomi was like, nah. <laughs> 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 so you know how you miss stuff like that um, by a hair. So I, I missed a lot of it. But I saw, I mean, I saw the, you know, I saw Bad Brains. I saw the Dead Kennedys. I saw that. I saw Mission of Burma. I saw that just next shade of bands all live. Um, But I missed the original wave. But I was listening to those records nonstop. I mean, London Calling and then Sandinista were really um, archetypal records for me at that time. So, why I didn't take that next step, I'm just not sure. I had an older cousin who grew up in Greenwich Village, and she went to everything. You know, she was at CBGB's when we were teens and it just but she was a woman and, and when i was still a boy yeah. and so and of course she got in you know because <laughs> they always let the girls in <laughs> and i would just have been like a really awkward you know like 14 year old boy tagging along with my 16 year old cool cousin who could get into cbs so i didn't do it
0: yeah i always wonder if like how much of those scenes are like now it's legendary and iconic and cbgbs and but every it but I'm like, did, did it feel like that at the time or did it just feel like it's?
1: Well, it was very exciting at the time for sure. But I, but I assume music is always exciting for kids at that age when they discover it. You
0: know? Yeah. That's how I feel about, you know, when yeah. I was young, I was like, but I didn't get, I was always working. I never, I worked nights in Chicago, so I never got to see
1: like a lot of them. Oh, wow. What a dilemma. You had to work nights. Yeah. Yeah, that is an issue. No, by the time I started going to shows regularly, I was out of my parents' house and I was I was in in Boston and just going to shows. But but by then all the punk stuff had stopped basically. Yeah. It was on on to the next thing. But Boston's always been a good town for Oh my god, back then it was amazing. Yeah. It was great cuz I came to college in Boston 81, fall of 81, and drinking age was 18, so we could go to any show and, um, shows were cheap. I could afford them on my very small pocket money that I had. Boy, and, boy. you know, it was great. You could go any, you could go see anything.
0: Do you know, this is total out of nowhere, but do you know Andy Paley?
1: No, i never crossed paths with Andy Paley. Yeah. I know who he is, of course.
0: He's, he's an old friend of mine and that's, I just, oh, well. this all sounded similar times. So I was like, oh.
1: mm-hmm. yeah, he's just a little older, I think. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. And yeah, so that whole era, some of them were still here, um, but I wasn't hip to it till a little later. Um, so all the kind of modern lovers, um, this larger circle of people and sort of power pop things that had happened were, were largely invisible to me when I first arrived here. Um, the hottest band in town when I first came to Boston was Mission of Burma. Uh, and they were amazing, just fantastic and then they stopped playing uh shortly after that and then there was a really interesting scene around their larger circle of uh, a lot of experimental music right away and um that was cool and then touring bands i mean it was just it was a great moment for going to shows. it was just cheap and
0: easy. yeah i don't know if it feels like that's all. It's harder, it seems, these days. It, th- things don't seem as cheap to go,
1: like, that's... Yeah, that's a big issue. I mean, I really wonder, coming out of COVID, how we're going to recover that particular part of the industry. The, because, obviously, the largest part of the industry can, can survive this in any way it needs to. Like, festivals are already back. Large venues are back. But can you get dive bars back? <laughs> really? I mean it, as like a yeah. functioning a functioning part of the music industry and that's to me a crucial part of our of our of our music world and that's really hard that's going to be hard to get back
0: yeah i had the hope i guess is because when i first moved to la there was a lot of like music venues and just they would be in you know shady parts of the town but Mm -hmm. they were Untradic- some of them weren't bars. There was a mm-hmm. series of shows in a, like an old church for a while. Mm-hmm. It got shut down because it was illegal, but I'm like, someone's well, going to find a way to do this. Yeah.
1: yeah. I think, I, I mean, I, I think that's, that's the most accurate and the best way to think about it is that, people will find a way, but it will be young people who have to find that way. And yeah, I'm too too old. (laughs) Yeah, no, but I mean, I think that's also why, like the parts of the industry that cater that are run by and cater to an older crowd are going to come out of this fine and already are. But how will the next generation sort of shape this? I'm not sure because it's very hard. It's just hard economically to do. Yeah. And it, it was a lot easier at that moment um, because we could just play bars and, and get by and, um, and shows. And, and then, I I mean, as as an audience member, it was really just a fantastic moment to be going to shows.
0: Yeah. What I've learned from doing this podcast is is that there's communities, music communities. Now it's not centered around the dive bar where everybody plays. It's like They've, it be, it's become like an internet thing or maybe they're on the same very small indie label, but all these mm-hmm. people know each other without ever having met. And it's like very, but, it, and the influences all are very similar to like if they all hung out at a club, it's kind of this weird progression. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that'll come to an end now that COVID is gone.
1: Yeah. I wonder how, I mean, we don't know yet, but I do, I do worry though about, um, just about the bands that need, um, that need a more low level of touring. Um, and, and that includes some genres because, you know, not all music is on its way to a festival slot. I mean, I think that's something that, that the industry doesn't really, um, think about enough that festivals are not just I mean, I think it's a type of music, in other words, that survives in in the economy that's been created for live music, uh, the commercial economy for it. And then you've got all the other types of music. There, the other types of music are not unsuccessful versions of festival music. They are actually different. And I think that that's, the, that's my worry, is just how do these really necessary different types of musics um, manage I mean, jazz is a great example where it's suffered for decades now, really, of uh, for lack of a commercial network at anything except a kind of official culture level. and And that's really deadly. It's deadly for a genre. And so you've got to allow for um, you know jazz that was meant to be played in dive bars. and um And that's hard to recreate. I think we're now we're in this situation where rock that's meant to be played in in dive bars or even experimental music that's meant to be played in dive bars is really like hurting for venues, hurting for a network.
0: Yeah, that's and just from my time in Los Angeles and Chicago, like all those dive bars have been gentrified out. And it's, mm-hmm. so it's like, where's the scene going to be like the mm-hmm. outskirts of Milwaukee? Like, I mean, literally yeah. it's, is it going to be a strip mall in the suburbs? Mm-hmm. Like where, where yeah. are people going?
1: Yeah. It's really, it's really problematic. I think. and um, um, and it's just, and obviously no one's going to like create that. No one's going to like invest in that as like a, a thing. And so it may just not happen. I mean, I feel like I watched that in jazz, uh, from my mother's generation where, um, you know, my mom's friends all talked about the arrival of the Beatles as this disaster. You know, it was like that was the end of their world. The Beatles arrived and destroyed a lot of their incomes um, because they were thriving. And then the Beatles came and they were all out of work, you know. And like my mom's friend, Bob Brookmeyer, the wonderful musician, spent years playing on the Merv Griffin show. Like that was that was how he survived those years where you couldn't get couldn't get a proper gig. And, you know, I kind of witnessed that, like, your, your milieu can actually disappear for your, for your music. Like, that does happen. It has happened time and again. And I think there's a little bit of denial in my own um, my own coterie of musicians and bands and uh, a little bit of denial that that actually can happen. And it can happen, like, really fast. Like, oops, there are no more venues where we get to play that can really happen. And, um, and I think that it sort of has happened for, for segments of our industry, which is really a bummer. So that's what I worry about. Um, I kind of think the vessels bl- are to blame uh, Live Nation and AEG specifically um, for a lot of this. What's happened in Boston, I don't know if this is true in LA, in Boston, Live Nation and AEG bought all the smaller rock clubs. They now own them all.
0: It's starting. If it yeah. hasn't... Like, I know the Echo and the EchoPlex was an independently owned place, and now mm-hmm. I think Live
1: Nation may own it, and it's just, mm-hmm. like, not the same. No. And so they own them down... In Boston, they went down all the way to 200 seats, 200 capacity bars. I mean, that's just crazy to me. Like, Live Nation and AEG should not be running 200 capacity bars, because that means someone who is trying to run an independent venue at 200 capacity is competing against the two biggest entertainment companies in the world. That's ridiculous. They they shouldn't be in the same realm at all. But they'd be competing for the same bands coming through town and the same acts. I mean, that's, that's just stupid. So, of course, what happens is you get only the AEG and Live Nation venues will survive. And not only that, but they're being set up as economically not necessarily profitable businesses at that level, right? Because they're just being underwritten as feeders for their real money gigs uh, for whatever various reasons. And it's just, it's an unhealthy environment. I mean, even down to who works in those clubs, they will send the youngest, most inexperienced sound engineer to run the board, of course, at the 200 seat place, right? and he's an employee now of Live Nation or AEG, but he's, he's like low person on the totem pole, so that's who you've got doing the sound at that venue instead of someone who's making their life to make that venue survive and do the sound there and make it great every night, you know? And as soon as that person gets good, he or she will be bumped up to the next level by, by the company. They wanna get out of that venue as fast as they can. That's really unhealthy. So that to me is is part of the the issue I think we're facing coming out of COVID, just in terms of live music.
0: That's depressing. And mm-hmm. my friend said he saw the Spotify logo on a
1: venue in Portland. Wow! So that's I didn't another know about that. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know what they're doing if they're investing or they're co-sponsoring. It's very possible. I just what
0: is the end game of them running a two hundred seat.
1: Like oh, the Live Nation and AEG? Yeah. Well, it's been explained to me in various ways. I mean, one, obviously, is just a squelch competition, right? Like, you dominate the market, you dominate the market. God you don't want damn it. someone coming up who develops their own reputation and rapport with bands and can take it to the next level and start promoting shows, rent out a theater, and take the band to the next level, you know? You don't want that competition. You want everybody working for you. The other thing is, I've heard that um, they want the booking agents, you know, they need for the booking agents to have clubs where their young bands can start. And so, but to keep it all in the house so that if the band hits, they go up through your chain, right? And what I've heard is that they make ties so that every time they come back, they will be playing a live nation venue. Even if they're going up the ladder, it's like they will be, they will be at the next one, the next one, the next one, then they play the festival. So it's a way of sort of, talent scout kind of signing people up unofficially to their roster, basically. Um, but mostly, I think it's just greed. I mean, I think it's just don't let anybody else develop the market um, because that's how other promoters get their start. So you're keeping people out of the industry unless they're working for you. Right. God, it's
0: it's grotesque. It's just mm-hmm. and offensive. <laughs> it's just so awful. And everything, I don't think You and I became creative people because we wanted to go through the ranks of a fucking corporation.
1: No, I know. But that you kind of have no, I mean, the the problem is that you have so few choices now. So if your band's starting out and you're trying to go on tour at, say, 200 capacity rooms, you still got to be dealing with Live Nation and AEG, at least in major markets. And that's nuts that's just nuts or your booking engine or you have to have a booking engine who will deal with them, you know, instead of just, I mean, it wasn't that it was so beautiful before you have to deal with some sleazy bar owner who's like cheating you. <laughs> but, but I mean, it was intimidating in a different way, but it but right. you weren't dealing with the people that you think might be one day putting you on their festival slot. That's weird.
0: So awful anyway like like coachella first of all owned by a right-wing yeah. jackass like I, I know and i'm I like know. where like a lot of these artists who get politically self-righteous i'm like
1: mm-hmm. where does it come and play with fucking coachella i know <laughs> like, i know like I, it's so yeah it's so disappointing but nobody can those monopolies are so huge now or duopoly in live music it's two companies you can't cross them. I mean, I, I mean, if you know, how are you gonna do it? And certainly your agent and your manager aren't gonna let you burn your bridges with Live Nation or AEG. You're screwed. You're just completely screwed. So that's that's really pernicious. And of course the agencies also have all consolidated. And so there are fewer, there are fewer smaller independent agents as well. And you know, the whole just the whole industry is so much more top-down than it was. And that's that's the part that I find so unhealthy. Because, you know, I don't think, I mean, I, I was, like, when you get to be my age, obviously lots of people make arguments like, oh, it was better before, or "My music was music, or whatever. And I think most of that is really bullshit. But what was better before, <laughs> for real, was was less consolidation of capital. I mean, that's not, I don't think that's just being romantic. It's like, that's just a fact. You look at any chart of economic development in the U.S., Hollowing out of the middle class, the enlargement of corporate profits, the um, you know the multiplication of workers' salaries to executive salaries—it's so extreme now, and that has really drastically changed. I mean, this is just like sort of Bernie Sanders material, but but it's um, it's just the truth, and it actually affects culture. It actually affects music because it's, it's, we, our, our business follows the same model as all the other businesses, so we too are stuck in this right now. And I think that's what's really changed. And that's, that's the, so it, the, the part of nostalgia that I will allow myself is a nostalgia for a more vibrant, diverse, independent industry, um, it's less consolidated, but what music is actually played by that industry. That is not my place to say, like, it used to be better. And I think that's, that kind of argument goes nowhere.
0: Do you have okay. hope that, that we can
1: achieve this? Yeah, I do. I think that these companies are going to collapse of their own accord because um, I think it's sort of like either the genre survives or the companies survive, because I don't think these companies can can safeguard the long term health of the of the of the industry. Um, So they're not interested in it. Spotify is a great example. Spotify is not a music company. They, They have all these billions of profits. What are they doing with it? You know, investing in Joe Rogan, investing in naming rights to the Barcelona football club stadium. You know, these are the things they're spending money on. None of that is about the the environment for music or, or production of new music. So they really don't care. Um they're but they're not a music company. And I think they're they're kind of the cartoonish version of what the major labels have become as well. Uh, probably have been for a long time, but are more extreme now, I think, than they were. In that they're no longer like music is such a small part of those corporations now, um, and the tech platforms is just off the charts. I mean, Apple, all of music could disappear from Apple tomorrow, and it wouldn't—they wouldn't bat an eye as a company, right? But you, I mean, you can't say that of of, of a record label. Obviously, if music disappears, the record label disappears. But Apple, what do they really care? Amazon. What do they really care? But these are the companies that we rely on, and that's that's just so um, gloomy and um, impossible. So I think the I think it's we're sort of like in a, you know in a in a war of attrition with these corporations. Like something's got to give, but I think it's the corporations that will give. I hope so. And I have, well, that's my Frank Capra version <laughs> like at, the, at the last minute. <laughs> Just Just when Gary Cooper's about to jump off The tower And kill himself Barbara Stanwyck Will appear out of the shadows And he won't do it
0: and, Talk about that, pulling it yeah. Full
1: circle Yeah
0: Well played
1: Thank you Thank you <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Dwyer. Please become a Patreon subscriber. Also, rate and review the show and tell your friends about the show. The best advertising and the best thing you could do to help me is tell people to listen to the show. Thank you very much and have a good day.